Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to apologize quickly. Connor and I have been having some technical problems with our recordings, and it has been delaying episodes and causing some sound issues as well. We're trying our best to sort the issues out, so thank you for bearing with us. Now, this week is all about a mystery. The events we will discuss in this episode have gone down in history as the Conspiracy of Septimima. But there is plenty of doubt to be sown on the narrative that Gregory provides us, and not just for the usual reasons. Gregory has pro-Brunhild leanings, sure, but this episode's controversy runs a little deeper. Let's talk about the shady details, state propaganda, and vicious political maneuverings in episode 62, Conspiracy or Not. To properly dissect this controversy, we're going to take a bit of a different approach. Usually we will take a little from Gregory, discuss the context, and analyze the events as we go. This episode I'm going to instead fully tell the entire story from Gregory's work, and then go back and discuss it in detail. That way we can get the full picture of what has been presented before I start poking holes in it. So, the beginning of this tale is a little convoluted. Childebert's wife, Queen Faluba, had just given birth to another child, but the child had not survived. As she was recovering from this birth, she caught wind of a conspiracy against herself and the Queen Mother, Brunhild. Once she had gathered enough strength, she took her information to Childebert and Brunhild. She told these two that the core of the plan was to isolate Childebert. The royal nurse, Septimima, was to persuade the king to put aside Faluba and banish Brunhild, and instead take a new wife. Without these women, the conspirators hoped to influence the king and have him do their bidding. If the king refused, Septimima was to use witchcraft to kill the king, and then the conspirators would seize control of the young princes, banish Faluba and Brunhild, and rule through the boys. The conspirators included in this were significant as well. Apparently, they included the noble Droktolf, the Refendary Gelomagnus, and the Count of the Stables, Sunigasil. These were important men with important positions at court. If there was chaos at court, they were well positioned to influence events, and their powers were well balanced. As Refendary, Gelumagnus had authority over official documents, easy contact with the king, and experience with the Austrasian bureaucracy. As Count of the Stables, Sanigasil was a powerful figure in the king's household guard, and also a military figure with authority amongst the army. Droktolf's background was a little more mysterious, but he seems to have been a wealthy noble whose support was maybe important for financial backing and a base of loyalty outside of the court. But Droktolf had also been appointed to help raise the royal princes, though his exact role in this was unclear. Once informed of this plot, the royals moved quickly. They managed to arrest Septimima and Droktolf, who were immediately tortured by being stretched out on the infamous rack. 
During this torture, Septimima confessed, adding that she had killed her husband with witchcraft and had become Drokdolf's mistress. Drokdolf also confessed to the charges, again implicating all of those who had been already named. Meanwhile, a search was on for Sanegasil and Gallo Magnus. It was quickly ascertained that they had heard of their impending arrest and managed to flee to sanctuary in different churches. When Childebert heard of this development, he went to the churches personally and stood outside. Gregory records what he then said. Quote, Come out and stand your trial. Then we shall discover whether the charges brought against you are true or false. It seems to me that you would never have sought sanctuary in the church unless your conscience had already been pricking at you. All the same, you have my promise that your lives will be saved, even if you were guilty. I am a Christian, and I deem it wrong to punish people convicted of a crime if I have to drag them out of a church to do so. End quote. Gregory then says that they were, quote, taken out of the churches, end quote, though he fails to clarify exactly what he means by this statement. But whatever the details, they appeared before Childbird and pleaded not guilty. These two claimed that Septimima and Drogdolf had tried to involve them in the plot, but they had refused, and they had fled because they did not want to be party to the crimes. Childbert questioned this assertion, arguing that if they had truly been unwilling to join the plot, why hadn't they immediately come to him and informed him of the danger? He ordered them to leave his presence, at which point they immediately fled back to sanctuary in a church. Next, Gregory describes the punishment for the conspirators, and here I will give a quick trigger warning. Both Drokdolf and Septimima's punishment includes torture and mutilation, which Gregory describes in detail, so skip ahead if you don't want to hear it. First, both Septimima and Drokdolf were severely beaten. Then, red-hot irons were applied to Septimima's face, disfiguring her. Now horribly scarred for life, she was sent off to a country estate and put to work for the rest of her days. Drokdolf had his ears and hair cut off, and he too was sent to the countryside to labour in the vineyards. He actually managed to escape a few days later, but he was quickly caught and returned to the king. Childebert had him flogged and then sent, once again, back to the vineyard. We can see in these punishments a kind of perverse justice that was being aimed for. Septimima's beauty was apparently her main attribute. That's how she'd gotten involved with Drokdolf. So it was taken from her. Drokdolf's ears were cut off, likely as a punishment for listening to Septimima's witchcraft, and his hair was cut. The hair being cut is interesting as this was usually a punishment associated with exiled Merovingians. For example, Gundervold had his hair cut. I think it most likely that Drokdolf's was cut to show his hubris at daring to think that he could gain the power of a king. Plus, it would have made it impossible to hide his horrible wounds on the side of his head. 
Senegasil and Gelomagnus, still hiding out in the sanctuary of the church, were stripped of all of the property that they had been granted by the king and exiled. However, here King Guntram intervenes, probably due to the lack of proof that the two men were actually conspirators. He sends some bishops to plead with Childebert to lift their sentence. The young king relented, recalling the two men from exile, but he did not restore their lands or titles, and they were left with only their personal wealth. And that's the end of the story. So let's go back through and discuss some of the details and why some things don't really match up. First of all, the origins of this conspiracy are suspiciously murky. There are no details about how Faluba happens to hear about the plot. Gregory later mentions informers, but never explains who they were or how they were able to get such accurate information. Of course, it is possible Gregory is not telling us because he simply doesn't know. There is a lot of other detail that he gives freely around this event. Why is it significant that she heard about it while recovering from childbirth? Is this meant to suggest that she overheard Septimima while she was with the other children? Or some other nurse informed her while she had access? It is also suspicious that Faluba is one of the targets of the plot along with Brunhild, and she is the one to hear about it, and when she goes to warn Childebert, Brunhild is already there to listen as well. It is worth thinking about what Faluba and Brunhild might stand to gain from implicating these people. Brunhild knew the importance of keeping tight control over the education of a young Merovingian. One of her first big moves in the court of Austrasia was to take control of Childebert's education while he was still young. Removing both Septimima and Drokdolf would allow for a similar level of control over the young princes, both of whom stood to inherit part of Childebert's kingdom. As for the inclusion of Sanegasil and Gallomagnus, well, that might just be good old-fashioned politics. They held important positions, positions Brunhild might now be able to fill with her own loyal men. Next, let's discuss the obvious flaw to any modern observer. Any accusation involving witchcraft is immediately suspicious. That's not to say such things weren't attempted at the time. Superstitions and fear of the unknown ran deep in Merovingian society. It is important to note, though, that witchcraft is one of those very convenient accusations. We have talked in the past about how the church used accusations of witchcraft to discredit traditional wise women who held authority independent of the church. Whenever you needed to get rid of someone, an accusation of witchcraft is a very useful tool. This accusation sticks like glue is very hard to disprove, and is very easy to prove if you're the one in the position of authority, and it immediately discredits the victim. On top of all of this, the plan is a little unclear as well. Gregory specifically states 
that Septimimur was only planning to use witchcraft to kill Childebert if he didn't agree to banish his wife and mother. So, the original plan was just to persuade him to put aside Faluba and banish Brunhild. How was she meant to do that? I think the added details of her affair with Drokdolf and her disfigurement are meant to imply that she was quite beautiful and her plan was to seduce Childebert. But that's mostly guesswork on my part. Gregory gives us literally no details as to how she was meant to achieve this task. The fact that witchcraft was the backup plan is another thing that arouses suspicion. It reeks of something tacked onto the story to make them seem more guilty. I think it's worth remembering here Fredegund's murder of Chilperic's son Clovis. Clovis had simply said some stupid and arrogant things, and he died for that idle talk. In that story, Gregory makes it clear that there was no other reason for this death. There is every reason to think that this is another case of Merovingians punishing idle talk about seducing the king and replacing the queens. But Gregory likes these queens, so he repeats whatever excuses they made. Another obvious point to make is that torture doesn't work. It's been proven time and time again that people who undergo torture do not give accurate information. Movies and TV have given us skewed perspectives. Most victims of torture very quickly say quite a lot. But rarely is it useful, because when you're subjecting someone to torture, their immediate priority is to get you to stop torturing them. So people tend to say what they think the torturer wants to hear, not the actual truth. We can see that here, when Sebdimima and Drokdolf immediately confess to the exact details of the plot once placed on the rack. With the use of leading questions, torture becomes more about getting forced confessions that you can use, and not about finding the actual truth. There is also Childebert's accusation against Sanigasil and Gallo Magnus. He questions why they ran to Sanctuary if they were innocent. Well, there's a rather simple explanation to that. Gregory specifically says that Septimima and Drokdolf were, quote, immediately put to torture, end quote, where they confessed everything. If I caught wind that I was being implicated in a plot and knew that I'd immediately be tortured, I'd flee to Sanctuary as well. There they were safe from immediate reprisals, and could state their case without fear of immediate retribution. This is also another rather obvious point, which is probably why Gregory includes Childebert's speech about being a good Christian. It's also worth noting that we've kind of heard this story before. In the Rouching Conspiracy, Childebert was informed about the plot by an anonymous source and immediately took action. That plot also happened to include Brunhild's enemies, Ursio and Berthefried. I treated that plot when we talked about it with less suspicion, a 
because there was more motive in these men's actions, and they acted more, well, guilty. The same patterns emerging again to remove more potential contenders for influence? Well, that's starting to get a little too convenient. To quote my own thesis, which it's my own podcast, so why not? There are too many coincidences in these events for them to not have been influenced by Brunhild. Often motive is the best way to guess at guilty parties when we have little actual evidence. And no one stood to benefit more from the purges of Childebert's court than Brunhild. But if I haven't convinced you, well, that's fair enough. If you think I'm starting to sound a little conspiratorial, I'd say, just wait until we get to the reign of Childebert's sons. With Gregory gone, and the anti-Brunhild Fredegar telling the story, we're going to get a much different picture of the Queen Mother. But there is one last detail to note. Sunnigasil and Gellomagnus eventually return to Austrasia, with the help of Guntram. But why would Guntram intervene in this matter? Other than a general love of throwing his weight around, why stick his nose into such a thorny and personal issue? After all, no one is better placed to condemn any hint of conspiracy than the ever-paranoid Guntram. Well, there is always the possibility that Brunhild wanted these men gone because they were a little too close to Guntram. Guntram had wielded significant influence in Austrasia during Childebert's minority, and the court had been split between pro-Chilperic and pro-Guntram factions. Given Egedius's implication, it seems likely that the Rauchen conspiracy contained a lot of the old pro-Chilperic camp. This might mean that Sunagasil and Gellomagnus were part of the old pro-Guntram camp. This is just speculation, of course, but it would connect some of these dots. So, we've gone through the details, it's time to answer the question of whether this was really a conspiracy or not. Now, despite what it might sound like after all of the points I have made doubting Gregory's narrative, I do think that there was probably something going on here. Just because Gregory writes a forgiving pro-Brunhild narrative doesn't necessarily mean that she was actually Emperor Palpatine pulling the strings of events from the shadows. Any royal court invites intrigue. In fact, Basically, any place where power resides invites intrigue. It's just that courts like the Merovingians add a dangerous element by raising the stakes to life or death. While I believe that we should be skeptical of the story of witchcraft and whatnot, I do think the likelihood that there were some plots to lessen the power of the royals is quite high. But on the flip side, I do think some of the details of this story are just a little too convenient. As I outlined earlier, Brunhild always seems to be the victim of some plot that is wrapped up with little difficulty and conveniently includes several potential challenges to her influence. 
It's just a little too neat and tidy to be really believable. Real plots are messy, ugly things that sprawl out until they either collapse under the pressure of their numbers or successfully gather enough support to execute their plan. It's about how focused and purpose, but also messy in execution, plots like the assassination of Julius Caesar or the gunpowder plot of Guy Fawkes really were. And people don't tend to plan things around nebulous and mysterious ideas like witchcraft or gently encouraging the king to abandon his family. When your life is on the line, you tend to plan things much more concretely about things that you know might work. The most likely scenario is probably somewhere in the middle. Most likely, the royal party caught wind of some grumblings and used the excuse to remove some officials whose loyalty was in question or who might cause an issue in the future. Whether these grumblings were a real conspiracy coalescing, or just loudmouth courtiers expressing their discontent or bravado, we'll never know. Royal courts are full of these weird grey areas of potential sedition, and handling them with subtlety and poise is the mark of a great medieval ruler. But the Merovingians didn't really have this problem yet, and since there were no checks on their behaviour, they could just jettison people and justify it later. This is basically what we see here. Gregory's narrative looks a lot like an official narrative being repeated back to us, rather than a collected series of facts that Gregory has worked to figure out. That's it for our discussion of this conspiracy. Next week, we'll get into another significant event, the revolt in St. Radigan's nunnery. It also includes Gregory's unique perspective, although it manifests a little differently there. And I know what you're thinking. Revolt? In a nunnery? Bit of an overstatement there, Nelson, surely. Well, just wait. I'll see you then. <laughs>